Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, today the Dow finished off its worst week in two years with a 666 point drop. That is the third largest point drop in the history of the Dow. Now, the last big drop that was larger happened during the 2008 financial crisis. And of course, percentage-wise, though, the 666-point drop today is only 2.5%. So it's really not that big as far as historic declines. I mean, it's large in a sense that we haven't had a 2.5% decline in one day in the Dow in quite some time. In fact, I'm not even sure when the last time we had a 3% correction in the Dow. And now that's what we've had. The Dow is now 3% below the all-time record high that it hit last week. Now, a 3% correction is pretty normal, except we haven't had one in a long time. And the question is, is this the start of something more ominous, or is this just a small correction? And you know what? I think there's a lot of evidence that it is the start of something much bigger. Part of the evidence is that nobody is concerned. Nobody is worried. There's maximum complacency. You know, even the superstitious people aren't concerned that the Dow fell exactly 666 points. Right. People aren't are so complacent that they're not even being superstitious. But I mean, casting that aside, think about this. 1987 was the year that we had the stock market crash. Well, January was the best month for the U.S. stock market since 1987. The dollar just had its weakest January since 1987. So, so far, this year seems to have a lot in common with 1987. We know what happened in 1987, Black Monday. Now, that didn't happen until October. But maybe this year it's going to come early. Maybe this year Black Monday is going to happen in February. Maybe next Monday. Now, obviously, I mean, the probability is not that we're going to have a crash on Monday. But it's a possibility. And I would say the possibility is much higher 
than it's ever been because of where we are and what's going on. Now, also, you know, the NASDAQ and the S&P were not down quite as much as the Dow, but they were both down about 2%. And the catalyst for the sell-off was the continuation of the increase in long-term interest rates, which has been going on. And I have been talking about that. The yield on the 10-year bond rose to 2.854%. It closed there. That is the high yield of the day. So bonds closed on the low of the day, right? And on the 30-year bond, we closed at 30.97. There the high was 30.99, almost 3.1%. And I've been talking on this podcast, rates are going up. And they're going much, much higher, right? If you look at these charts, we've got a lot of air between where we are and where the normal resistance is. But therein lies uh, the complacency because nobody is worried about the rise in interest rates. Nobody is thinking about 1987. It was rising interest rates that ultimately pricked that bubble. But why did rates rise? Because the budget deficits were going up and the trade deficits were going up. But that's exactly what's happening now, except they're bigger budget deficits and they're bigger trade deficits. And it's happening at a time where the United States is broke. We have massive debt, much more than we had in 1987. Yet, if you listen to uh, the so-called experts and CNBC, and I basically spent all day listening to CNBC. Now, a lot of times I have CNBC on. I don't actually listen. I have the volume down. Uh, But today I listened. And believe me, if you're an investor the last thing you want to do is actually watch CNBC. I mean, that's the blind leading the blind because they had one guest after another on, had no idea what he's talking about, and neither do any of the the hosts that are interviewing these guys. Everybody is bullish. Everybody is complacent. Everybody's like, oh, yes, interest rates are rising, but it's okay because they're rising for the right reasons. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter if they're rising for the right reasons. We can't pay the higher rates. But how do they know they're rising for the right reasons, right? They think that rates are rising because of economic growth. Well, what if that's not why? What if rates are rising because the budget deficits are rising, right? I mean, Congress will have to borrow a lot more money. That means the supply of bonds goes up. Well, then price goes down. We have to entice people to buy those bonds. Now, remember, when we had big deficits uh, after the financial crisis, the Fed was monetizing them. The Fed was printing money and buying the bonds, so that kept rates from going up. But the Fed's not doing that anymore. In fact, the Fed says that it's also going to sell bonds. It's going to be selling the bonds that it has in addition to the bonds that the Treasury is going to be selling to finance trillion-dollar deficits. So doesn't it make sense if we're going to have trillion-dollar deficits plus the Fed is going to be adding to the pile by selling from its balance sheet as opposed to buying from the Fed. So now it's, I mean, this is so much more debt than we've ever tried to sell. Obviously, rates have had to go up. And the trade deficits are going up. So we have twin deficits exploding like we did in 1987, except now we have an economy that is so much more addicted to cheap money. And, you know, when when all this falls apart, right, we get the stock market crash, we get the economy crash, you know they're going to come back and they're going to say the Fed screwed up, right? They, They raised rates too much. That wasn't how they screwed up, right? You don't screw up by kicking your heroin habit. You screw up by taking heroin in the first place. The problem that the Fed made was they never should have cut rates as much as they did, and they never should have left them as low as they did for as long as they did. 
The collapses are inevitable, but nobody cares. Everybody thinks, oh, well, interest rates, they'll only rise a little bit. Why? Why should they stop rising? Right. Especially if you believe all this nonsense. Right. The Atlanta Fed came out yesterday. They're they're projecting five point four percent GDP growth for the first quarter of this year. Now, I don't know what they're smoking over there at the Atlanta Fed. They're certainly drinking a lot of this Trump Kool-Aid. But let's say let's say they're right. Let's say we're going to have five percent growth. Well, what's the nominal GDP going to be if you're going to get five percent growth? Well, let's say we only have two percent inflation. I'm sure it's much more than that. But if you're going to have 5% growth with 2% inflation, that means you got nominal GDP growth of 7%. So if you have nominal GDP growing at 7%, why should the yield on the two-year be 3%? You know, historically, the yields on the 10-year are about the same as nominal GDP growth. So rates should be at 7%. If you think we got 5% GDP growth, well, then, you know, yields should be at 7%. So why should they stay at 3%? They should skyrocket, right? It makes no sense. For people to argue that rates should stay this low. It doesn't even matter what the Fed does, right? How many times the Fed raises rates, whether they raise them four times, five times, three times, the yield curve has got to steepen. If we've got economic growth, we're going to be selling all of these bonds, massive supply, the dollar is weak, inflation is picking up. How can bonds stay this low? I mean, the only reason that bonds got this low in the first place was because the Fed was doing quantitative easing, right? And the economy was, was stagnating. Well, if everybody believes the economy is about to grow right, and it's going to boom, and not only is the Fed not doing quantitative easing, it's doing the opposite of quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. It is actually selling treasury bonds into a saturated market. Why would you assume that rates are going to stay at historically low levels? I mean, you can at least assume that rates go back to an average level. But the reality is, when you have an abnormal amount of debt, more debt than we've ever had, rates should be higher than normal. Because when you owe a lot of money, there's more risk, right, that you're going to have to inflate, right? And so if we have massive supply, we should have to pay more, especially when so many people are so convinced there's these great investment opportunities in stocks all around the world, we got we to gotta pay them something to forego those opportunities and to own bonds instead. So the, the idea that interest rates are not going to go up very much, there's no basis for it. To me, to try to argue that rates are going to stay this low, which is abnormal in light of what's happening, that is, is crazy. What's, what makes a lot more sense is just to assume, hey, rates are going to go back to normal. But the problem is they can't because we can't afford normal. I don't understand why people don't understand how important low interest rates are to the asset bubbles, to the bubble economy. The whole recovery, so-called recovery, is predicated on very cheap money, on artificially low interest rates. You cannot take away those artificially low rates. You cannot remove that cheap money and expect everything to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's a disaster. And you know, I think if you look at a chart of the bond market, the bond market's about to crash. And all bond markets, I mean, look at the charts of the junk bonds. Junk bonds are going to crash. Treasuries are going to crash. All debt instruments are going to crash because rates are going way up. And the only thing that's going to stop a crash in the bond market is if the stock market crashes first, which may happen. But none of the stock market investors are worried about it. Now, why would a stock market crash 
prevent the bond market crash? Because if the stock market crashes, the Fed's going to call off the rate hikes. The Fed's going to call off quantitative tightening, right? But if they don't do that, right, then the stock market's going to fall until they do. And if they don't do that, the bond market's going to keep going down. But I think the trajectory of the losses in the bond market is going to pick up, right? I think it's bonds are going to start to fall even faster than they've been falling, right? Because who's going to want to step in front of this? Look at these charts, right? Forget about the fundamentals. Forget about gloom and doom. Just look at a chart, see where yields are, and take a look at where they're going to go. Yet nobody is doing that on CNBC. Nobody cares to look at it. Look at the VIX, which is the volatility index, which is spiking out, which broke through some key levels. It closed today at 17.3. Now, that VIX was at record lows. That measures volatility, complacency. It was under 10 last week. And I think, you know, if it breaks through 20 on Monday, you know, look out. I mean, we, you know, we, we can have a much bigger move up. And, of course, that means a much bigger move down in the stock market. And nobody is even worried about the possibility because that's how clueless everybody is to what is actually going on. They don't understand the dynamics here. They don't understand the artificial nature of this phony economy and how it completely depends on a continuation of cheap money that the market is removing, right? So again, it's like drug addict, we're on a high, we're taking away the drugs. We're not going to stay high, we're coming down. We're going to have a huge hangover, we're going through withdrawal. So something's got to give. Either the bond market crashes and crashes the stock market, or the stock market crashes first, and then the bond market gets a bid. But the problem there is in order to save the bond market, to save the stock market, they have to sacrifice the dollar, the dollar has to get killed. And the dollar was getting killed, and it was down again overnight, actually, a little bit. Again, you know, and it made new lows again against the Chinese yuan. But the dollar rallied back today following uh, the, uh, the jobs numbers that came out that were interpreted as being stronger uh, than expected. And I will get to that because they really weren't. Uh, but you got a rise in the dollar. But interestingly enough, the dollar did not close on the high of the day. And in fact, at one point, the dollar almost surrendered all of its gains. And by the close, the dollar index did end up uh, closer to the highs and the lows. We closed at 89 spot 22, but barely a rally. I mean, this is not the type of dollar rally that you would normally get years and years ago when you had a flight to quality in the dollar. Also, we didn't get a, a rally in gold. Gold sold off today. Uh, as a result of the big increase in in interest rates. And again, the idea that traders have is if, well, the Fed's going to hike rates uh, more aggressively uh, than we thought, if they're going to do four rate hikes instead of three, you know, that's going to be bad for gold. It's not. But, you know, if these are traders, they trade off a of short-term news. So gold was down about 20 bucks at the lows, 21 bucks. But it closed off the lows, closed down about 16. They were buying some gold at the close. Not so for stocks. Stocks made the lows of the day in the final minutes of trading. And, and so that is more telling than these profit-taking or short-term corrections. We had a big down move in the dollar. Okay, so a few people covered positions. Gold was around 1350 where people see resistance. And so it had a decline. But this move, what's happening in interest rates, is not bad for gold. It is bullish for gold. It is not good for the dollar. It is bad for the dollar because unlike what everybody is saying, rates are not rising because of the improved economy, because the economy is not really improving that much if it's improving at all. 
But what is improving, if you want to call it an improvement, is the size of the deficit. They're getting bigger, right? Not the economy, but the debts that the economy is producing. The budget deficits, the trade deficits, our savings rate is at a 10-year low. So we have to borrow more money than ever, and we have less savings than ever. So where are we going to borrow the money? Not from the Fed, because they're not lending, so we have to borrow it from abroad, because that's where the savings are. Well, why are foreigners going to want to loan us money when the dollar is dropping like a rock? Well, we got to pay them more money. So this is a huge story. The dynamics are ominous. And all the people who've never understood this, who've been merrily on their way, you know, buying stocks, yep, everything is sunshine and lollipops, having a care in the world because they don't understand what this means. You know, let me get to the numbers that came out today, the jobs numbers. And it wasn't the only economic data that came out today. And most of the other data was kind of ignored, but it was actually bad. And I will get to that. But so we got the non-farm payroll numbers for January. And they were looking for 175,000 gains. And we ended up getting 200,000. All right, bigger. Oh, we beat it by 25,000. Except they revised the revisions. I mean, the last month was revised up a bit. But the month before that had a bigger downward revision. And so net of the revisions, the numbers were about in line. Unemployment, 4.1%. Pretty much exactly what everybody was expecting. Right? Labor force participation, still a pathetic 62.7. No improvement there. But what did the markets jump on? It was the increase in average hourly earnings, which were supposed to rise by 0.3. And they did rise by 0.3. But the prior month was supposed to rise by 0.3. And they increased at the 0.4. So the year-over-year increase ended up being 2.9 as opposed to the 2.6 that they were looking for. Right? Big deal. That's the number. Oh, wages have gone up 2.9% over the year. Oh, we finally have wage growth. And so now all of a sudden the bond market reacted. But the bonds were already down. We had already gone through a 2.8 on the 10-year last night, long before these numbers came out. So these numbers didn't cause the bonds to sell off. They were already selling off before the numbers. They just sold off more after the numbers. And who knows? They might have sold off the same amount regardless of what this number was. Because it's not about these numbers, right? It's about the bigger picture dynamics that are at play here. Plus, if you look at these numbers, the average uh, hourly uh, work week declined from 34.5 to 34.3. And it declined year over year. And in fact, if you adjust for the fact that people worked fewer hours, because if they worked fewer hours, they got paid for fewer hours. So the average hourly earnings is how much you earned for an hour that you worked. So if you didn't work, you didn't earn the money that hour. So if you adjust the fact that the people work fewer hours, then actual earnings are not up 2.9% year over year. They're only up 2.6%, which is about what they were looking for anyway. So that's really what you got, a 2.6% gain in what households actually earn. Now, remember, those numbers aren't adjusted for inflation. Now, I believe the cost of living in the last year has gone up by more than 2.6%. Even the CPI might show that. Right? So I think we're more than 2.6%. Uh, in an inc- So there's no real gain in wages, but everybody's talking about all this wage growth, and it's not there. Also, manufacturing jobs, they were looking for 18,000. We only got 15,000. Last month, they told us we created 25,000 manufacturing jobs. They revised that down to 21,000. So the good jobs, the jobs that Trump is bragging about, we actually got fewer of those. Right, We got more of the, the low-paying jobs, the part-time jobs, 
And, you know, here is a, another statistic. And, you know, this shows you, you know, when Donald Trump bites on these statistics and claims credit where credit is not due, it's going to come out and bite him. So in the State of the Union address, Donald Trump went out of his way to trumpet the fact that black unemployment was at an all-time record low, which it was, I guess, the way we measure it today. You know, obviously, you know, we've got record numbers of blacks not in the labor force because they're not working, uh, you know, and a lot of people are taking these part-time jobs. But there was a spike in black unemployment. It was um, the, 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 biggest, the biggest jump in 12 years, in 12 years in unemployment. And we're now at the highest level for black unemployment since April of 2017. So three months after Trump was elected. If this trend continues, maybe by the next jobs report, black unemployment will actually be higher than it was when Trump was inaugurated. And so that's obviously going to come back and bite him because he just claimed credit for doing all this great stuff for unemployed blacks. And if it turns out that the unemployment rate actually went up among you know blacks while he was president, well, you know that's just going to be another inconsistency among a whole host of inconsistencies uh, that he is going to have to deal with. I mean, he has basically taken this bait hook, line, and seeker by claiming credit for a lot of stuff that is about to turn around. Now, other than that, what is the significance of this big spike in black unemployment? Why did it happen? You know, I mean, maybe this is a harbinger of things to come, you know, kind of like, you know, the subprime market, right? That went first and then the rest of the market went. Maybe a lot of the blacks who are employed, maybe they are in weaker positions uh, of employment. Maybe, you know, they got their jobs. They were hired last, so they got fired first. I don't know. Or maybe it's, you know, the, the type of work that they happen to be doing. They were the most expendable when their bosses were cutting back or whatever, if they were disproportionately represented there. But it could be a harbinger of things to come, like the weakest link in the chain is breaking first. That's what happened with the subprime mortgages. They were the weakest link in the mortgage chain, and they broke first but then the rest of the chain. So the fact that you've got the weak links breaking and you have this big spike in, in black unemployment could mean that a spike in, in white unemployment is next, right? So people, this is another negative that, that nobody was talking about. Also, later on today, we got the University of Michigan uh, confidence numbers and this tum tumble, right? It's still high, but it's the lowest since uh, before the election, right? Or right, or, uh, right after the election. So all of a sudden, consumers who are very confident are not nearly as confident as they were. And if you look, we got some numbers on capital goods today. Core capital goods orders tumbled by the most since September of 2016. Right? We haven't seen that happen in a while. What is going on here? And also, you know, we got some productivity numbers that came out yesterday for the fourth quarter. Right? And they were looking for a rise. I think 1.1% is what they were looking for. And instead of getting a rise, productivity actually declined. The decline wasn't large. I mean, it was 0.1, but the fact that it declined, I mean, that hasn't happened since the first quarter of 2016. So declining worker productivity, that simply feeds into the inflationary narrative that is driving the backup in interest rates. Because productivity, right, that's, that's the key, right? You got to make workers more productive. And if they're not more productive, if your labor costs are just rising and you're not getting more productivity from your workers, well, you know, prices are going up. And that is exactly what's happening. And, you know, these increasing interest rates, I've been saying this for a long time, that rates going up 
is also going to feed into the inflation numbers because rates are a big component of everybody's costs. Everybody has to pay interest rates. And so that gets built into the cost structure, right? You're buying something uh, from a company that has debt, right? And that cost of debt is part of the cost of running their business. And it's going to be embedded in the price of the products they charge you because they got to sell them for a profit to stay in business. You know, you're, you're uh, renting an apartment. You don't think interest rates matter because you don't have a mortgage. Well, what about your landlord? Chances are your landlord doesn't own that property free and clear. Chances are he's got a loan on it. And it's not a 30-year fix. You can't get those really when you're in commercial property. Chances are he's got a five-year arm or something like that. And all of a sudden his rate jumps up. What does he do? He jacks up your rent because he's got to pass on the higher cost of servicing his debt to you, the tenant. I mean, so this is all across the price structure. So the inflationary pressures are building. The data shows that. It doesn't really show strong economic growth. But again, what everybody is missing, they're looking at the tax cuts and they're saying, oh, this is going to be great for the economy because there's going to be tax cuts. But what about the effect of rate hikes and price hikes for raw materials and other consumer goods, right? What the tax cuts giveth those rate hikes and price hikes are going to take it away. And remember, if profits go away, right, because the income tax only comes on your profit. So if you're a company, you actually have to pay your interest. You actually have to pay your raw material costs. You have to pay your labor costs. The tax savings only help you if you made a profit. So if these rising costs wipe out a company's profits, the tax savings don't help. Right, Because all they have is diminished profits because their costs went up. The drag to the economy from rising interest rates is enormous, especially to the United States government. We have a massive budget deficit that's already been made even more massive by the tax cuts, which was going to get more massive anyway by the increases in government spending. Now it's going to get even more massive than that because of the increase in the cost of debt. Right. The payments of the debt on the money we already borrowed, plus the money we're about to borrow. You know, you know, I was watching on CNBC. They, Larry Kudlow came on late in the day. And one of the things that Larry Kudlow says is that we better raise the debt ceiling quick because we don't want to endanger you know, our, our credit rating. Yeah, we wouldn't want to do that. We wouldn't want to mess up our credit rating by raising the ceiling that limits our ability to go deeper into debt. Right. But yeah, everybody, in fact, the secretary of the Treasury came out and said, we better raise that debt ceiling quick. Yes, because we have a lot of debt that we want to sell. That is why interest rates are going up. Although another crazy thing that that Cudlow said, and I'm going to see Cudlow, by the way, I'm going to be in the Orlando money show. Larry's going to be there. Uh, And I like Larry. He's a nice guy. Just wish he would stop cheerleading for the Republicans, because in the long run, it doesn't do the Republicans any good uh, to cheerlead a bubble and then have it pop. I mean, that's what Cudlow did when Bush was president and I warned him about it and I was right and I'm, and, and I'm right now, but I'm going to be in the Orlando Money Show uh, coming up uh, next week, I think on uh, February 8th through the 10th. So if you're in the Orlando area, come by the Money Show. It's free. Just you got to go on moneyshow.com and sign up and hear my talk. I'm sure it's going to be a doozy. Have my workshop. Come say hello. But the other thing that uh, Larry Kudlow said was that he doesn't see any inflation on the horizon. He said that inflation is not caused by rising wages or full employment or economic growth. All true. I agree with all that. He said rising inflation is caused by bad money, which is almost true. 
it's bad money that is inflation. But that's what he meant. He meant inflation is caused by bad monetary policy, by printing too much money, right? And he said, but I see no evidence of that. And my thought is, what is he, what are you, blind? What do you mean you see no evidence of bad money? What do you call QE1, 2, and 3? What do you call 0% interest rates? In fact, I remember in the early days when, when Cutlow still had me on his show and the Fed launched quantitative easing. Cutlow, I think, understood that this was a problem. In fact, he, he wanted the Fed to do it, but he understood in conversations, like, hey, this is bad. This is inflationary, but we got no choice. But now all of a sudden he thinks everything is great. There's no bad monetary policy. Believe me, we've had the worst, the most inflationary monetary policy in, in history. The amazing thing is that that inflation hasn't already spilled over to a bigger degree in consumer goods. Now, one of the reasons is because the way we measure it is flawed by design. So it actually is spilling in. We're just not measuring it right. But again, because of the reserve currency of the dollar and because of our trade deficits and our exporting our inflation and because a lot of the inflation has temporarily resided in financial assets, there has been an unusually long lag between the creating of the inflation, the printing of the money, and the effect that it has on consumer prices. But just because the lag is longer than normal doesn't mean that it's not going to be there, right? We're just, it's just going to be there even bigger. I think the bigger the lag, you know, the bigger uh, the, the wave that we're going to get crushed with when all that inflation that we've been exporting comes washing back up on our shores like a tsunami. But, you know, Larry Cudlow doesn't see this coming, just like he didn't see the 2008 financial crisis coming. I used to go on his show. He called it the Goldilocks economy, right? It was great until, until the bears came home and, and, and ate Goldilocks for lunch. That's basically what happened. And now he is just as oblivious uh, to an even larger problem. But it's not just Cudlow. It's everybody on CNBC. You know, I fact, the fact that they don't have me on CNBC it's just more evidence. You know, I remember that somebody once sent me because, you know, I, when they used to have me on CNBC a lot, a lot of times if the market went down a few days, they would have me on because they knew I was a bear. Even if I wasn't necessarily bearish on the market, I was bearish on the economy, on the dollar. But they associated me with that. And so if the markets went down, they would call Peter Schiff. And someone once sent me a statistics. They, they ran like a, some numbers and they said, hey, whenever you're on CNBC, it's a buy signal because you go on and hear you, you, you know, you actually, the market actually goes up. So it's almost like a contrarian indicator. By the time they had me on, it was because the market was a buying opportunity. But since they never have me on now, the market just might be doomed. It might just keep falling indefinitely until they decide to have Peter Schiff back on to put in a temporary bottom, right? But, you know, they, they don't even think that it makes any sense to have a person like me, right, who, who isn't drunk on the Kool-Aid, who's not on the Trump train, there's no reason to even have me on. I mean, actually, I was sending out a lot of tweets today. If you're not following me on Twitter, you should do that because I figure, you know, I, I can't actually communicate on CNBC or Fox or CNN. You know, they don't want me on anymore, but I can communicate directly either through this podcast or I can tweet something out. So they can't really stop me. They can maybe prevent their audience uh, from listening to me, but they can't prevent my audience from listening to me, which is fine. I mean, their audience can lose a bunch of money. And mine could take their money. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, their audience are like the suckers in a poker game who don't know how to play. Except they don't know they don't know how to play. And they, they, you know, we've let them win a few hands and they think they're ahead. But we're going to end up cleaning them out. We're going to take all their chips and they're going to go home broke. Speaking about people going home broke, I can't finish up this podcast without talking about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency. So earlier this morning... Bitcoin traded down to 76.25. At least that's, I'm looking at Bitstamp. 
76.25, that was better than a 60% decline from the high that had hit about 20,000 back in mid-December. So you're, that's not a long time for a 60% drop in that market. I've been talking about how weak this market has been looking. We keep making lower lows. We're making lower highs. I mean, this looks like a classic bear market to me. You know, we're following a slope of hope, right? Because every time we make a low, because we went down there, we got down to 7,600 on Bitcoin, and then it rallied over 1,000, right? People came in and bought, right? Buy the dip, right? They came in, right? People are not uh, uh, panicking yet. Nobody is, uh, you know, giving up. Nobody is cashing out. There's no capitulation uh, in this market, which means the market is likely going a lot lower until that happens. Maybe after that happens, maybe then there could be some kind of a rally. I mean, what I think is driving it, and there's been a lot of bad news that has come out a lot, the Bitcoin. I mean, you have, you know, Facebook saying we're going to ban ads. You have India, you have other countries, or maybe we're going to ban it. So, but I think what's the real bad news that's driving this, I think, other than the fact that it's a bubble anyway and was going to go down, is the stuff going on with Tether. Now, if you're not familiar with, with, with Tether, right? Tether is a uh, cryptocurrency that is backed by dollars. So it's actually a legitimate cryptocurrency backed by a fiat currency, the dollar, right? It'd be better to have a cryptocurrency backed by gold, but this is a cryptocurrency backed by dollars. So you don't get any of the benefit of being out of the dollar by being in tethers, right? Because you're still in the dollar. So if you think the dollar is going down, well, though, so are tethers. But you now have a, a cryptocurrency that I guess is used a lot in the crypto world to buy other currencies and to make transactions of dollars outside the banking system, which is a reason I think the government could be very concerned about Tether, uh, could maybe try to shut it down because people are potentially counterfeiting dollars, which is what they're doing if the Tethers are not backed by dollars. And I think that is the allegation. They are now under investigation. This has been known, I guess, publicly for a week, maybe privately longer than that. I think the Justice Department, the FBI or somebody is investigating Tether because an allegation is that they don't have all the dollars. Like people are, you know, either sending in dollars and they're doing something with those dollars or they're just creating Tethers without people paying for them in dollars, right? Which was a classic scam. You know, people used to do that all the time with gold, right? They would sell gold and say, hey, we'll store your gold. And then they would sell gold. They wouldn't actually buy the gold, right? They would, you know, it was a scam, bucket shop. Well, they could be doing the same thing with tethers. They could just, there, there might not be dollars behind those tethers. Everybody thinks there is. But the other part of the allegation is that they're creating these tethers out of thin air, these counterfeit tethers, because they're not actually backed by dollars. And then they're using the counterfeit tethers to buy Bitcoins, right? Maybe to, to spoof the markets. They're buying Bitcoins from one another with tethers created out of thin air. So there's no actual money, but they're using the money they created out of thin air to, to, to buy Bitcoin and prop up the price. So there couldn't have been a manipulation going on of the Bitcoin market with counterfeit tethers. So these are the allegations. I have no idea if they're true, but the rumors of those allegations, because if they are true, this is some bad news, right? Now, if they're not true, and maybe they're not true, right? I mean, there's not always fire where there's smoke, right? The government isn't always right. Sometimes they investigate things, and it turns out that they were wrong. So if it turns out that Tether is legit, and they get audited, and yep, they have every every dollar they have for every Tether, they're all there, and they weren't manipulating the market, that might be a catalyst for the market to rally, right? Depending on how low it is, you know, when you know they get the clean bill of health. 
But if it turns out they investigate it and they, they arrest these people or they shut this down or they say, you know, yes, it's a fraud, then, you know, the, the markets could tank. Right. I'm not sure how much of that is in there. But when I first heard that, and I put it up on my Facebook page. That's what I thought was the main problem. I think the, the, the rest of the stuff, you know, was typical uh, Bitcoin news that the market had been ignoring the whole way up. Right. And of course, you know, all the Bitcoiners, you know, I mean, they're all in there. Right. They're holding. Right. They got it spelt wrong, but they're holding. They're not folding. And all of it is FUD. Right. As far as they're concerned, it's all fear, uncertainty and doubt. Right. That's part of the cult, right? That don't let any of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt cause you to sell your precious Bitcoins, right? Because just ignore all that bad news, right? Because it's just trying to make you doubt everything. It's just trying to create fear and uncertainty, right? Just like be oblivious, right? Just be blind, ignore everything, and just hold on to your Bitcoins. Now, why do some people want everybody else to hold on to their Bitcoins? So they can sell, Right. That's the idea. You got to get the price to go way up and make sure other people don't sell so you can sell yours. Right. So you got these people that are blindly. Don't worry. I'm holding. I'm holding. I'm not selling anything. Right. And that's enabling other people to sell because if the people who are holding wanted to fold, the market would implode. And I don't think that's happened yet. Ironically, and I just found this out, you know, a bunch of Bitcoin uh, millionaires or early adopters, they've all descended on Puerto Rico because of me. You know, I was on the beach a few days ago and I met this guy down there and, you know, he says, yeah, you know, and he's a, was an early Bitcoin guy, made a bunch of money and he had just moved down here. And he said, you know, the reason I'm down here is I, I learned about this from the Joe Rogan podcast. You were talking about it on Joe Rogan and I looked at it and I came down here and I, you know, and I got another 50 Bitcoin people. We're all coming down here and now we're all living uh, in Puerto Rico. And um, and then today. Here I read an article in New York Times about how all these Bitcoiners have now moved to Puerto Rico to try to turn it into uh, a utopia uh, in Puerto Rico, Portopia, or it's like the Bitcoin capital. They've all come down here with their Bitcoin riches. Now they're all looking to buy condos and houses and they want to start a community here uh, in Puerto Rico. So, you know, they're, they're all coming plus me because I went on the Joe Rogan podcast and basically, you know, I guess, you know, I was trashing. A Bitcoin, but they, they, they put that aside and, you know, they, they liked what I had to say. They liked the idea of the tax haven. Maybe it's almost all young single men. Maybe they liked the fact that I talked about how attractive the women are down here um, and how, you know, there's not that many men with jobs. And I thought that, you know, so if you're a young guy, you know, you got, you know, you got a pretty, you know, uh, you don't have that much competition. And I talked about how great the, uh, the the tax time was. So that could be. But, you know, it'd be unfortunate if, you know, Bitcoin completely collapses because we already got more single unemployed men than we need here in Puerto Rico. So, you know, I don't want these guys to go broke. But I mean, a lot of them, you know, they, they got in early. Right. They, they've been holding for a long time. And I'm sure some of them have sold something. Right. Because the guys that got in that early. Right. They they have to sell something. Uh, so they have some money and maybe they'll get into some other. Uh, legitimate businesses that are just not cryptocurrencies or block coins. Uh, but the article, you know, the New York Times article that I read, that anecdote was left out. I mean, it, it would have been interesting if they if they mentioned how everybody decided to come to Puerto Rico is because they were listening to the Joe Rogan podcast and uh, and they heard uh, they heard me talk about it because, you know, I was one of the first people down here. I mean, not me personally. I moved my company, my asset management company down here in 2013. They, they passed Act 20 and Act 22 in 2012. 
So I was right early, you know, and my, you know, Jim Nelson, who's running asset management, he and his family, they came down here first. And my whole team came here uh, from Southern California. And most of these Bitcoin guys that are coming uh, to, uh, to Puerto Rico, they've come from California, right? So they, they're not only are they getting out of the, the federal income tax, but they're getting out of the now no longer deductible state uh, income tax as well. Anyway, it's going to be real interesting on Monday. As I said, I think the risks are high for a big drop on Monday. Why? Because the market's been going up on fumes. The whole time, interest rates have been rising, and no one has cared. Right? So you, when you have nobody worried, you have nobody short, you have nobody uh, with puts, people aren't protected. Uh, so you've got a surprise. I've been saying that we were potentially heading for a crash, and we may have it. You know, Monday, you know, I mean, if this if we're going to have more in common with 1987 now, maybe it's going to wait until October. But, you know, history doesn't repeat exactly. It'll rhyme. And so maybe people thought they had some extra time. They thought they had until the fall. Well, maybe fall comes early. Right? Maybe it's going to come. You know, we just had Groundhog Day today. And, and so maybe it's going to come in, in early February. But what I do think is going to change, I do think that that rally in the dollar was temporary. And I think the fact that the dollar did not close on the highs uh, shows that the downtrend for the dollar is intact. The fact that gold was only down 16 bucks, despite the fact that it started around 1350. The fact that gold was bought on the close, not sold. I think that gold is a big buy. I think that the traders who are jumping to the conclusion that a weakening bond market is somehow bad for, the, for, for gold are completely wrong. Because the bond market is going down because of inflation, because of rising deficits, because of concerns over the credit worthiness of the United States, because of the added debt and the fact that they're going to have, they may have to resume QE in order to finance it. Bonds are going down for all the same reasons that gold should be going way up. It's just that most people don't know why bonds are going down. They think bonds are going down because the economy is great. And because they think the economy is great, they think nobody should buy gold. They're wrong. But for a day, they could be right because a day doesn't matter. These are, this is noise. This is, this is day trading. This is people are trying to you know, you know, just play the, the swings, and they often do the wrong thing. So I think that if we do get a big drop in the stock market on Monday, I think gold rallies, and I think the dollar sells off. So stay tuned. Let's see what happens, and I'm sure I'll be doing another podcast on Monday. Thank you.